People were dropping dead unnecessarily, prematurely from these diseases long before COVID-19 came along. That's just exacerbating a pre-existing catastrophe of a chronic disease that need not happen. We've known for decades, yet hundreds of thousands of Americans continue to die from this preventable, arrestable, reversible disease. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And this is going to be an epic show. Two huge names, one big show. Doctors Michael Greger and Neil Barnard are here, and it doesn't get any bigger than that. We have so much to talk about, and this conversation with Dr. Greger is really one for the record books. He and I got together during the virtual Fairfax VegFest, and it wasn't even a sit-down conversation because he was on a treadmill the entire time. And so while we were on this walk together, he's sharing some vital information with us, telling us how to survive a pandemic. And that, by the way, is the name of his new book. So how do you do that? Well, with good nutrition and exercise and a healthy life. Really, that's the generic prescription, but Dr. Greger is going to give us the specific formula that we should be following and we're going to find out what his favorite bean is. He's a bean guy. So if you've ever wanted to go inside Dr. Greger's kitchen, we're going to take you there today. And also on the show today, we're going to be opening up the doctor's mailbag. Dr. Neil Barnard and I will be joined by dietitian Karen Smith, answering all of your health and COVID-19 related questions. Questions like one from Tammy, whose insulin is up, but her A1C levels are still normal. So what's going on there? And Judy is wondering about asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19. Could she be infected and not even know about it? We're going to answer those and a bunch of others. We have a lot to discuss, a lot to learn, and so let's not waste any more time. Let's get right down to it. And first up, let's learn how to survive a pandemic with Dr. Michael Greger. Dr. Greger, I must say, you on the treadmill right now. This is an absolute first. I'm glad to be here. I wish the whole thing was happening in person and we weren't uh, facing the current crisis we are. But the good news is there's something we can do about preventing the next one. No doubt. And before we get into that, I just want to say for those of you who are listening to the audio portion of this, not only is Dr. Greger on a treadmill, he's on a treadmill in a tie. I mean, this is dedication to pounding the pavement, so to speak. This is just fantastic. I love it so much. No pants, but a tie. Okay, well, let's keep the camera above the waist. How about that? Um, wow, thank you uh, so very much for taking the time. I, I know that uh, you are an extremely busy guy. Uh, been speaking with so many people today about the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously. And I just want to start with the big question is, if people were not eating the standard American diet, 
so high in fat, so low in fiber, would the United States be in such a pickle that they are in right now? And eating so much sodium, speaking of pickles. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are um, uh, one of the reasons why the United States now has the highest number of deaths compared to any other country in the world is because of these pre-existing conditions. Let's think about them. Obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, every single one of them cannot just be prevented and stopped, arrested in their tracks, but reversed with a healthy enough plant-based diet. And so the fact that, for example, obesity is increasing the risk of a severe course of COVID-19 by six, seven times. And that's for a BMI over 28. That's not even obese. That's just overweight, increasing um, uh, sixfold, sevenfold, the risk of a severe course. You know what the average BMI in the United States? 29, meaning most Americans, more than half, are, have so much excess body fat are so overweight, they themselves are at significantly higher risk, not to mention all of the other underlying risk factors. That's why it's critical that we need to eat a healthy diet, not just to prevent uh, chronic disease, but also to uh, better face um, uh, the other leading killers on the list, including infectious diseases like pneumonia. In fact, you know, the fourth chapter of how not to die was how not to die from infections concentrating on lower respiratory tract infections. We'll talk about that in just a second. I want to talk to you about another study sticking with the obesity thing. I saw this past week that said in younger people, the prevalence of obesity who had severe cases of COVID-19 was just through the roof. And as a matter of fact, the authors of this particular study uh, kind of surmised that at this point, COVID-19 and obesity was, was more of a threat than, than heart disease. And I think that that speaks volumes. And they talk time and again about the connection there because of the inflammation that is caused by obesity. And so my question, Dr. Greger, to you is this. We get so many people who write into the exam room who are new to a plant-based diet. They hear time and again, inflammation, inflammation, inflammation. But what in the world is inflammation and why does food play such a role with it? Yeah, so, well, there's two different types broadly of inflammation. There's acute inflammation. That's when you get a you know, splinter in your finger, and your finger gets all red, hot, painful, swollen. That's your finger getting inflamed. That's actually a good thing. That's your body's immune response to try to get rid of that splinter and to fight off any bacteria that were introduced by that splinter. But there's another type of inflammation, the so-called smoldering, low-grade inflammation of chronic disease, this chronic overactivation of this inflammatory response on a day-to-day basis. No acute stressors, but just this underlying smoldering inflammation um, that contributes to many of our chronic diseases, such as heart disease um, and diabetes. Um, And so it can be considered kind of like an autoimmune uh, component where your body's just a little too revved up. Um, And uh, so we can squelch that inflammation, reduce our risk of chronic disease by eating anti-inflammatory diets. What we eat 
can play a significant role in decreasing this systemic general inflammation that increases our risk for chronic disease. And the most anti-inflammatory foods are whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, uh, legumes, which are beans, split peas, chickpeas, lentils, whole grains, you know, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices, mushrooms, basically real food that grows out of the ground. These are our healthiest choices. Uh, we are speaking with Dr. Michael Greger here at the virtual Fairfax VegFest and the Exam Room Podcast. Quick check-in as you're taking a stroll. Are you at the quarter mile mark now? I am uh, 57.19 miles this week. <laughs> I uh, average about uh, 17 miles a day. So, oh, so this is this is your legitimate office. Like you are giving us some serious insight into the mind oh, the, of Michael. This, uh, yeah, I work at a treadmill desk. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm only going about 1.8 miles an hour, but uh, it just builds up over time because I work so long. We talk so much about nutrition on this show, but how important then would you say that exercise and just walking 1.8 miles an hour while you're doing your work, how important is that then to reducing your risk of having a severe case of a viral infection, whether it be COVID or anything else? Well, I mean, this was, uh, so uh, at this speed, I'm not really getting aerobic exercise. I'm not really doing much weight bearing exercise. What I'm doing is I'm uh, undermining the uh, risks associated with prolonged sitting. So those who sit six or more hours a day, even if they then go out and work out an hour after work, are at significantly higher risk of death. And we think that's because of the stasis, the blood pooling um, in your legs, um, uh, impairing uh, the, the, the function of your arteries, um, increasing one's risk of cardiovascular disease. So it's really, I'm walking not so much to exercise, but walking so as not to sit so long, which increases one's risk of death. And you've heard that, you know, sitting's the new smoking. Not true at all. Smoking's 10 times more deadly, but uh, um, uh, prolonged sitting is indeed not a good thing, although uh, has not been uh, put to the test against infectious disease. But we do know that general, um, uh, that, uh, that exercise movement in general is important for maintaining a healthy immune system, as is getting sufficient sleep, seven to nine hours a night, stress management, and eating a healthy diet. I'm curious, sir. Uh, you mentioned that you weren't wearing pants, so I will ask you to keep the camera where it is, but are you wearing sneakers to match the tie? Uh, you got, Well, I don't know if they match, but yes, you do need good footwear if you use a standing desk or a walking desk Otherwise, it can get uncomfortable by the uh, you know, 16th mile or so. I would imagine so. Uh, let's get uh, serious again for just a minute. Um, nutrition here, as we said, is such a critical role. And we know for a fact with all of the comorbidities that we hear about with COVID that a plant-based diet can be so beneficial in terms of treating them. And so while this virus is way too new to have any sort of firm study on the effect of a plant-based diet on this, we do know that it does help with the comorbidities substantially. Why is it then, Dr. Greger, by and large, we're not hearing a lot of doctors talk so much about the nutritional component of this and really kind of putting this to the test with their patients? I was speaking with Dr. Baxter Montgomery earlier today, and he was telling me about the success that he's having with his patients who have this and putting them on a plant-based diet. Why aren't we hearing so much about that? 
Yeah, well, that's uh, really exciting to hear. I hope he'll uh, publish at least a case series. I'd love to do a video about it. Well, look, this, we're not hearing it for the same reason we didn't hear about it before COVID-19. Before COVID-19, the number one cause of death, heart disease. I mean, all, you know, most of the leading causes of death tied to diet and lifestyle. So people were dropping dead unnecessarily, prematurely from these diseases long before COVID-19 came along. That's just exacerbating a pre-existing catastrophe of a chronic disease that need not happen. We've known for decades that our number one killer of men and women, heart disease, could be reversed with a healthy enough plant-based diet, yet hundreds of thousands of Americans continue to die unnecessarily from this preventable, arrestable, reversible disease. What about somebody who is not exactly very well, fall, uh, well off financially, okay? And they may live in an impoverished area, a food desert, as a lot of people like to coin the term. What advice would you have for them in terms of trying to eat more healthfully, even though they may not have access to the same types of grocery stores that you and I may have access to? Look, the healthiest food is also the cheapest food. Have you priced dried beans lately? <laughs> Seriously, like a pound of dried beans, right? I mean, uh, you know, oatmeal, apples, cabbage, some of the healthiest foods on the planet are some of the cheapest, least expensive uh, foods on the planet. So you really get the best of both worlds. Um, in fact, it's ironic now with COVID-19, all of a sudden people are going out and, dry, and buying you know, canned beans perhaps for the first time in their lives. Um, and I can just imagine the Google search, what do I do with canned beans? <laughs> of course, we've all known for a long time, healthiest source of protein out there, legumes, all beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, have everything that you'd expect from a protein-rich food like iron and zinc but lacking the saturated fat and cholesterol found in animal-based sources of protein, and as a bonus, has many of the nutrients found in plant foods, such as fiber and folate, these phytonutrients. So you really get the best of both worlds when we get our uh, protein from plant sources, and legumes are the most concentrated source. I'm sure that fans of yours are wondering, well, hmm, he's just talking about beans. I wonder what Dr. Greger's favorite bean is. Do you have a favorite bean, sir? Uh, who doesn't have a favorite <laughs> bean? Um, uh, I'm a big fan of lentils. Why? Because they cook so quickly. My God, in my pressure cooker, one minute. I can cook them in one minute. Um, uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, but of course, a canned beans take zero minutes. You whip them out of the can, you make some hummus in no time. Uh, but yeah, no, I, uh, I do love lentils. Probably my favorite type are these little black lentils, also known as beluga lentils, because they look like a little uh, round caviar. Um, I love the texture. You eat them cold in, like a, in, a, in a salad um, or uh, lentil soup. I mean, just the, it's, uh, the, it's endless what you can do uh, with legumes. You're you're the second guy today to be on the lentil bandwagon, man. I gotta I gotta go get some lentils for dinner. You need to who absolutely get some lentils. Get some lentils in your life, people. If you're gonna do one thing today, get some lentils in your life. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about uh, some projects that you have uh, in the works. I understand that uh, you may be working on a new book. Is this true? I have a new book. The manuscript is actually due tomorrow. will be out fast-tracked May 26, 2020. Um, I'm going to publish How to Survive a Pandemic 
Um, it is uh, coming out on ebook and audiobook. I'm going into the recording studio alone next week um, to uh, record the audio. Unfortunately, physical copies of the book won't be out until this fall, but at least we will get this, um, um, this important information into everybody's hands. Uh, May 26, uh, you can, uh, 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 it can be pre-ordered now, and all, of course, the proceeds from the book are uh, donated to charity. When you go into the studio and you read the copy, are, are you as enthusiastic with it as, as you're doing with this interview now, or do you do it more NPR style? Oh, it's no, no, dry. no. It's, this is good stuff. I mean, it's a detective novel. Where did this virus come from in the first place? What can we do to prevent the emergence of future deadly viruses? It is a fascinating read, and it's, uh, I won't say it's a page turner because, again, there aren't going to be pages till this fall, but it's definitely a screen swiper. Oh, man, that screen swiper. Welcome to the 21st century, boys and girls. That is fantastic. <laughs> Swipe right for nutrition. Uh, oh, my gosh. This is, this is great. Uh, how to survive a pandemic. Um, do you talk at all about the origins of the virus in there? This is something that Dr. Barnard and I have been speaking about at length at the Physicians Committee, are these live animal markets where these viruses have originated. Have you had a chance to research those? And, and Absolutely. In fact, that's what the whole book is about. Yes, there are chapters on you know, what we can do to protect ourselves and our family in terms of overcoming uh, COVID-19. Um, but uh, the bulk of the book is really on exploring where these viruses came in the, from in the first place and how we can prevent them in the future. You know, over the last few decades, new diseases have emerged or reemerged at a rate unprecedented in human history. AIDS, SARS, mad cow, bird flu, swine flu. Most of these new, new disease threats are coming from animals. Why? Because we're changing the way animals live on a global scale, right? The AIDS virus is blamed on the bushmeat trade in Africa, killing chimpanzees. SARS and COVID-19 trace back to the wild animal trade, these live animal wet markets in China. Mad cow is because we turn, you know, herbivores like cows and sheep into carnivores and cannibals by feeding them slaughterhouse waste, blood and manure. Our last pandemic, swine flu in 2009, didn't arise from some backwater wet market in Asia, but was largely made in the USA on industrial pig operations in the United States. Now, thankfully, swine flu only triggered what the CDC calls a Category 1 pandemic, resulting in only about a half million deaths. But, uh, you know, the last time a, a bird flu virus jumped species and uh, spread easily human to human, it triggered the worst plague in human history the 1918 flu pandemic, which killed upwards of 50 million people. And from the point of view of that virus, the same trench warfare conditions um, that existed um, in World War I that led to the emergence of the 1918 virus exist today in every industrial chicken shed, in every industrial egg operation, crowded, confined, stressed, but not by the millions, but literally the billions. And now we have bird flu viruses like H5N1, H7N9, uh, poised to kill millions around the globe should they lock in the necessary mutations to easily spread to human to human. And so that's why, um, uh, you know, we should really look to our own plates um, in terms of what we can do to prevent 
the next pandemic. We may just be one bush meat meal away from the next HIV, one you know pangolin plate away from the next coronavirus, and one factory farm away from the next killer flu. Tragically, we don't tend to shore up the levees until after the disaster strikes, and it may take a pandemic that wipes out millions before we really realize the true cost of cheap chicken. So it sounds to me when the news first started to hit about, hey, there's this virus and it's coming and it's coming hard, it really to you probably came as no surprise. It was more of a, here we go. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I wrote, uh, you know, people I think tend to think, uh, you know, How Not to Die was my first book. It's actually my fourth book. The one before How Not to Die was was on pandemic preparation and and preparedness. I actually, I mean, I had a whole pandemic uh, planning checklist for families. It was like the daily dozen for pandemic prep. Have the, you know, the disposable gloves and the masks and the sanitizer, the food, the water, the toilet paper. I called it 14 years ago. (laughs) Um, uh, in that book, um, uh, and, uh, you know, but, uh, the silver lining of COVID-19 is that this just me, uh, maybe kind of a, a dress rehearsal, a fire drill, uh, kind of a dry run to get us ready, um, and prepared and really focus on, on, on pandemic prevention. What can we do, um, to uh, give these animals some more breathing room? Uh, to you know, they, it's these, uh, it's the, the you know the the pigs and poultry that need a little more social distancing, frankly, um, uh, and uh, what we can do to prevent the emergence of the next killer flu and the next deadly coronavirus. Is it your estimation that, given the magnitude of what we're experiencing right now on this global level, that we will learn certain lessons and be able to move forward and not have this recur? Well, I mean, we certainly could. I mean, there's two ways we can go. You know, it's ironic, uh, and this is not just from uh, from an infectious disease standpoint. Uh, you know, one of the risk factors that we didn't talk about for COVID-19 is air pollution. Those people who live, uh, in addition to smoking, those people who live in polluted areas um, have diminished lung function and more likely to suffer a severe course. But ironically, the because of the lockdowns in China, um, uh, their, uh, the air quality has improved so much that the number of people dying prematurely because of air pollution has dropped as many as 25 to 35,000 premature deaths a month in China, meaning COVID-19 may have actually saved lives in China because more people are being saved from the improved air quality than have been killed by the virus, right? I mean, that, uh, that's, I mean, that's how bad the air quality was. And so are we going to go back to before and have, you know, a thousand people dying a day in China from bad air pollution? Or, or are we going to think about how we can retool the system to make better personal decisions uh, to affect global health? And by global health, I'm not only talking about pandemic risk, but I'm talking about the risk to our climate. You know, and and I hear you say that, and it thinks back. Uh, I think back to this story that I saw in the past couple of weeks. Is people all over the world now are able to see so much further? You know, these the 
smog has literally lifted. We have reports out of Kenya where people are able to see a mountain peak that they haven't seen in decades. You have people in India from more than 100 miles away now able to see the Himalayan mountains. Like This is remarkable. And you think about how quickly that stuff was able to clear up. It really puts things into perspective here. Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, I mean, it makes me think of how rapid the human body can heal once provided with the proper fuel. So people go their entire lives with chronic disease conditions, inflammatory arthritis, for example, and then within weeks of starting to eat healthier, their body comes back to health. Their body's been wanting to heal all along, but when it's being stabbed with a fork three times a day, it just it can never heal. And all you have to do, stand back, stop re-injuring ourselves three times a day at every meal, and all of a sudden our body can come back to health. Um, and then it's up to the person. Do they want to go back to the diet that caused the disease or do they want to look forward to um, a life of health and longevity? And uh, I think we're facing that same um, decision on a global scale for our species. Do you have any sort of insight into what uh, way we're leaning right now based off of the traffic that you've seen over at Nutrition Facts? Have you seen an uptick since the pandemic began? Well, I have been doing a lot of content on COVID-19. So we just published, uh, we just did a four-hour webinar, um, just published all the kind of takeaway notes from that. Um, I've been, you know, working really hard on putting together, I kind of, you know, uh, just cutting through all the noise and nonsense out there and talking, you know, what's the best way to treat this disease? What's the best way to avoid the disease? Uh, best way to inactivate the virus, et cetera. It's tremendous body of literature coming out, 400 articles in the peer-reviewed medical literature every day now. Um, uh, And so really, we have, at Nutrition Facts, built up this team that normally is concentrated on all the new obesity research and all the, you know, all the, uh, you know, but now the leading killer went from chronic disease to now COVID-19 every week is killing more Americans um, than chronic disease, than our leading chronic disease, more than heart disease. And so we've been able to kind of shift this research machine quickly, adeptly to, all right, well, now our number one priority, if, we are, if, we, if, our, if our reason for our existence is saving lives, well, then we're going to switch from chronic disease. We're going to switch um, to COVID-19. And so all of our, you know, 200 research volunteers are now piling through the literature and we're going to put out the best information there is about this disease. I've got a series, a month long series of videos coming up about this, have the new book coming out. Um, I'm excited to be able to use this kind of uh, machine that we've created um, to to give people really the best science um, that we can find. Well, I I can't wait to uh, continue to see what comes out. And I really can't wait for the uh, audio version of How to Survive a Pandemic. I think that this is just going to be the gem of all gems. So this comes out again when, sir? May 26th. May 26th. Mark that down, boys and girls. May 26th is the big day that is mandatory listening. So uh, we will circle that on our calendars, and I'll be sure to mention that again on the show. Uh, In the meantime, I just have a whole heck of a lot of fun. I, I... Never thought I would ever be able to say, hey, I took a walk with Dr. Michael Greger. But lo and behold, this is exactly what we've been doing for the past half hour. So thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I'm looking very much forward to getting back and 
uh, and, and walking face to face. But until then, uh, yes, indeed, uh, social distancing is really spatial distancing, physical distancing. We should stay as social as possible, albeit from a distance, and connect with friends and family and take this opportunity to take care of ourselves um, uh, to uh, better withstand whatever the world has to come. All right, Dr. Michael Greger, thank you so very much. Good luck with the new book and enjoy the rest of your walk. Thank you so much. put a link to order Dr. Greger's book in the episode notes. So if you want to get your hands on a copy, go ahead and click that link and put your order in today. And just a quick bit from the description on Amazon that will wet your whistle. The description there reads, as the world grapples with the devastating impact of COVID-19, Dr. Greger reveals not only what we can do to protect ourselves and our loved ones during a pandemic, but also what human society must rectify to reduce the likelihood of an even worse catastrophe in the future. It's going to be a good read. Out May 26th, How to Survive a Pandemic. Let's turn now to your questions. And Dr. Neil Barnard and dietitian Karen Smith joined me on the exam room live to get your answers and make us a little bit smarter and a lot healthier. So under the spotlight today, questions like, is there a safe amount of vegetable oil that we can eat? And is it possible that farmed animals are being infected with the virus? And how will people who eat them be affected? And Heath, he's vitamin D deficient and wondering about ways to boost his levels beyond just taking supplements. So what should he be doing? Well, let's find out as we welcome Dr. Barnard back to the show and open up the doctor's mailbag. Dr. Barnard, the first question comes to us from Allison, wonderful supporter of the show. She's been watching and she has a follow-up to our discussion on cigarettes and vaping. She writes, what do you make of the French study that infected smokers are less likely to develop symptoms and if they do develop them are actually more likely than non-smokers to have symptoms that are mild? Interesting study. Uh, great question, and, and thank you for um, submitting that question, Allison, and also thank you so much for your support of what we're doing here um, at the exam room. Um, yeah, the, uh, this, the study you're talking about, it got a lot of press uh, through The Economist, and uh, about 25% of French uh, adults are smokers, according to recent surveys, and what they reported was uh, among people who, who were hospitalized or in serious outpatient treatment, with COVID-19, only maybe four or 5% of them were smokers. So the thought was smoking is going to help you. Um, and things went a little bit further. Um, nicotine was suddenly the, the, um, uh, the, the possible benefit. And the idea is that when the virus is inhaled, it arrives at that ACE2 enzyme that I mentioned earlier. And that's what allows it then to get sucked into the cell. That's the welcome mat. And there has been some reporting that maybe nicotine will attach to that very same receptor and, uh, and, and block the virus from attaching. That's the hope. Well, there's several things, a couple things wrong with that. Uh, first of all, the study was a small study. Um, it was an, really quite an uncontrolled study. And the, the researchers themselves uh, raised the question, well, these people are coming into the hospital 
um, and they might be saying they're a non-smoker, but maybe they just quit uh, recently. And maybe even some smokers didn't want to admit that they were smoking. So they were a little bit skeptical of their own data. But also, to tell you the truth, what has worried me even more is that there was a, an article in the Journal of Medical Virology in uh, April 15th, I think it came out. And they looked at 11 different studies of smokers, put them all uh, through a meta-analysis. And what they found was frightening. Smokers had double the risk of a serious infection. And if you had uh, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is uh, typically caused by uh, a lengthy smoking career, the risk of a, a bad infection, a very symptomatic infection or a deadly infection was increased fourfold. So the best evidence we have is that if you don't smoke, this is not a reason to start. If you do smoke, this is probably a good reason to quit. And what researchers are going to do, though, is they're going to follow up this, this uh, nicotine connection by testing whether nicotine administered not through cigarettes, but through patches or pills is helpful. Um, so this, the very same people then who are hoarding uh, hydroxychloroquine are now going to start hoarding, hoarding nicotine. So stay tuned. It's amazing to me the just incredible amount of research that's being done that's tied to COVID-19. Like, I never thought that there would be a study specific to smoking and whether or not it's actually beneficial, but here we are. Uh, next question is actually for Karen. This person writes in, is there an acceptable amount of vegetable oil that we can safely consume each day? Karen, what do you think? A safe amount? Um I'm not sure what the upper limit is. I would, I look at it this way. So they're certainly not necessary for good health by any stretch. You don't need to be using oil to um, have really great health. And so in my opinion, the least amount that you can use is the best amount, um, you know, and depending on your health conditions for somebody who's looking to reverse type two diabetes, reverse heart disease, then, then less or none is, is my recommendation. If you're someone who's in really good health and doesn't have any of those chronic health conditions, you can get away with um, having a little bit more oil, um, recognizing that it is really calorie dense. You know, I know personally, like, it's just something that um, has been easy to not cook with at all. I don't miss it. And, um, you know, many of the women that I work with, um, in my same age category, you know, in their 40s, um, have this trend of gaining weight. I've not experienced that. And I think, um, you know, perhaps if I still was using oil, um, maybe that would be different. I don't know. All right. Dr. Barnard, coming to you next. This is an interesting one. We talk so much about diabetes on the show. This comes to us from Tammy. She writes, I've been eating a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet for three years, and in the last 18 months, my insulin went from 4.5 to 16.2, but my A1C is still in the normal range. Any idea why? Uh, okay. Um, you, you said your insulin went up and I, I guess I'm not sure if you're talking about an insulin dose that you were taking, um, or if you're talking about your insulin, your, your blood insulin level, I'm guessing you might be talking about the amount of insulin in your bloodstream. Um, and if that has gone up, um, first, I'm a little surprised that your doctor would test that, but if, if your doctor did, um, there's really two reasons why insulin can go up. The acute reason is, as you already know, sugar will make your insulin level rise and carbohydrate will too, briefly. Um, and so if you have something sugary, your body makes insulin, goes into the blood, 
to store that sugar. But here's a surprise. Protein will also raise insulin. Um, it's uh, another uh, maybe less known property of insulin. Insulin will go into the bloodstream. And if you've been consuming a lot of protein, your body will then take that uh, protein, put it in the cells by using insulin to do that as well. So the point being that if your diet is high in protein, high in sugar, your body will make more insulin. Uh, the more important issue though, really, and the more uh, long lasting issue is fat getting into your blood, uh, into your uh, muscle cells and liver cells. Fat comes from the foods that you eat. So if you eat um, something fatty, oil, uh, lard, bacon grease, your insulin level won't rise right away. Um, and your blood sugar may not rise right away, but the fat gets into the cells and the more fat that gets into the cells, then the more insulin resistant that cell becomes and the more insulin your body then makes to try to overcome it. So the answer, get the fat out of your, out of your diet. Now, you, you mentioned that you're already following a pretty low fat diet. Uh, the only thought I have is do a search and destroy uh, on your diet. Look for... Um, a lot of nut products, seed products, uh, guacamole, added oils, and those it, that little bit of contraband for some people can make their insulin levels rise. Contraband. Uh, sticking with you, Dr. Barnard, this one comes to us from Andrea on YouTube. Uh, this is a really good question. What can I say to my doctor to help him update his knowledge about nutrition without sounding rude? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a funny thing. Can you, can you imagine if you went to a doctor and the doctor says you have a high cholesterol level and you said, should I take a statin? And the doctor said, what's a statin? <laughs> you know, I mean, you would, you would march out the door, but you could say to a doctor, um, you know, the, the doctor says you got to have a high cholesterol level and you say, uh, maybe I should go vegan. And we just quite accept that doctors have no clue in so many cases about vegan diets. Now, I'm happy to tell you that that is changing rapidly. And at our annual conference that we have here in Washington um, every year, um, by the way, this year, it's going to be all 100% virtual. But it would just make your heart sing to see hundreds and hundreds and, and now thousands of doctors who are learning about this and, and do know about vegan diets. And so they hopefully won't make you angry. Um, but here's what, here's what you could suggest to your doctor to kind of get him or her a little more clued in. Um, we have a website called Nutrition CME, like Continuing Medical Education. Uh, it's free. And doctors need CME. And I'm going to tell you a, a secret. This is 2020. December of 2020 is when doctors in most states have to renew their licenses. And so they need CME to do it. And so they're paying money for, for continuing medical education. This one is free. It's all plant-based. NutritionCME.org. One more resource, uh, the Nutrition Guide for Clinicians. That's an app. Uh, it's on your iPhone. It's on your Android. You'll see it on uh, the web. Nutrition Guide for Clinicians. Everything you need to know about nutrition. Uh, look at you peeling back the medical curtain. I had no idea. December 2020, that's the big one. Okay, so now is the time. Um, sticking with you, Dr. Barnard, from Darcy on YouTube, anything we can do to help horrible migraines? I get such horrible migraines every single month hormonally. I am sorry to hear you dealing with that. Uh, wow. Um, yes. Well, first of all, let's make sure we all know what a migraine is. Everyone knows a migraine is a headache, but it's not a tension headache. Like I'm having a bad day. I've got this diffuse pain. It'll go, it'll go away in a half hour, 45 minutes. No, that's not a migraine. A migraine is a sledgehammer. It's hammering your brain, often one side, not, not always, but quite often it's one-sided and it's throbbing, it's pulsing. 
Um, and it's not quick. It can last overnight. You can have it all day tomorrow. Uh, and with it, you're often sick, nauseate, nauseated, vomiting. You just feel rotten. Um, two real strategies here. Um, one is you mentioned that it comes cyclically every month. And I'm going to guess that this comes right around the time that your period is starting somewhere in there, or maybe a couple of days before um, you're having hormonal shifts. And uh, this is something that, that Chuck, you and I talked about uh, with my new book, you, uh, your body and balance. Uh, let me mention to you, to you in response to this question, um, estrogen changes over the course of the month, cause all kinds of problems from uh, routine menstrual cramps to worsening endometriosis and over the long run, higher risk of breast cancer. So the key to getting that down, to getting estrogen down is a high fiber diet. Fiber helps carry estrogens away. A low fat diet because reducing fat brings estrogen levels down. Definitely avoid cheese. Cheese has estrogens in it. But if you, if you put all this together, um, try this as an experiment for the next two or three months. No animal products at all. Keep oils really low. That way it's very low fat, very high in fiber, um, and see if you don't do better. That calms down the estrogen storms, and maybe your migraines won't happen. For extra credit, uh, we did a migraine study several years ago where we found that certain foods trigger migraines. And this is quite independent of the menstrual ones. It can happen any time of month. Um, dairy products, number one. And this is true for even low-fat dairy, skim dairy, avoid it. Uh, dairy products, eggs, uh, meat can do it. But for some people, it's things like nuts, uh, wheat, citrus fruits, tomatoes. These are unusual, but they can happen. And um, if you look in my book, The Cheese Trap, not to be promoting all my own books, but check it out of the library, um, in the very back of The Cheese Trap, because so many people have cheese-induced headaches, there is an elimination diet that you can try where you take all the triggers out of your diet, put them back in one at a time, and see which one or more than one triggers the pain. And then you got your culprit, then you avoid it, and hopefully you'll be headache-free. We've seen a lot of people cure their migraines using that kind of approach, and it just changes your life. All right. Uh, we spoke extensively about that in that podcast series that we did uh, w with your book. And as a matter of fact, I, I just got an email from a viewer the other day who was, uh, she lives in Georgia and she's like, as soon as the restrictions are lifted, you tell Dr. Barnard that we need one of those stops on that book tour to be right here in Georgia. So I'm doing my part. I'm telling you, Georgia would love to see you. Well, if they're open now, all right. Uh, <laughs> let me get down to Atlanta. Um, yeah. We're going to help you lead, eat in a more helpful way. All right, Karen, this one comes to you. We've got time for just a couple more questions here. So post yours in the comment section right now. Uh, Karen, this one comes to us from Kathy on Facebook. She writes, how damaging is salt to our health? Should we give it up entirely? Um, I generally don't recommend that people cut it out entirely. Um, it is, uh, as can contribute to hypertension. It also is inflammatory. Um, the great thing about adopting a whole food plant-based diet is that you're eating foods that are really naturally low in sodium to begin with. And so having a little bit of sodium um, generally is okay, like less than 2,000 milligrams a day. Um, some people need less than that, 1,500 milligrams or less, um, depending on their health conditions. Uh, and so if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, it's, it's easy to not exceed those amounts. 
All right. Uh, Shifting back to COVID-19 now, Dr. Barnard, this one comes to us from Virginia. She writes, is it possible the farmed animals are being infected with the virus and how will people who eat them be affected? Um, Yeah. Um, What I suspect, strongly suspect, is that farm animals may pick it up, but they will probably throw it off. Um, When I speak of farmed animals, I'm thinking about uh, pigs and cows. Uh, With chickens, uh, I'm frankly, the jury is still out on all of these ones, but let me hedge on, on chickens and, and uh, ducks and geese only because we've seen viruses go through poultry farms like crazy and then become transmissible animal to animal. Um, what I'm more worried about, uh, frankly, are the COVID infected humans who work in the slaughterhouses um, as they're killing the animals. Uh, I'm concerned that the um, COVID can be airborne they're sneezing, they're coughing, they're shoulder to shoulder, and they may well be wrapping up the virus along with the pork chop. Um, it can last on these surfaces for long enough to end up at your local Kroger's uh, or Publix or Safeway. Um, so I think that's the bigger issue. Probably I'm less concerned about a live animal picking it up. All right. This question comes to us from YouTube. Uh, Next to last one. This is from Heath. He writes, I was diagnosed with vitamin D deficiency and have been given a high dose of D2 supplements. Besides getting outside more, is there anything I can do to make sure that I'm absorbing as much as possible? Okay, great question. Um, First of all, you can get tested. Um, When you get tested, for whatever reason, everybody turns out low. Uh, Whether that's a lab artifact or you really are low, uh, you, you can... Uh, you certainly can supplement. Um, I obviously work with your own doctor, but almost every caregiver is going to say supplement to about 2000 international units a day. You're using D2. Um, that's perfectly effective. That will work. Some people favor D3 and will say it has a slightly better absorption. Um, there is such a thing as vegan D3. Uh, if it's not specifically labeled as vegan, it actually came, believe it or not, from wool. Um, the, uh, it's in the lipid uh, on the sheep's coat. And one of the many creative things people have figured out to do is to extract vitamin D from, from sheep's wool, uh, not, not your favorite source. So you can get D3 and get vegan D3, but I doubt that will be dramatically different from D2. Uh, so what, what else can you do? If you're overweight, losing weight uh, helps. We talked about this on yesterday's program. Vitamin uh, D tends to get soaked up into body fat. Um, when you lose weight, the vitamin D is liberated back into circulation. Uh, And do get sunlight uh, 20 minutes a day on your face and arms if you can. If you cannot do that, then supplementation is the name of the game. All right. Final question is actually for both you, Dr. Barnard and Karen. We're going to start with Karen. Uh, This one is from Emma on Facebook. And she writes, I feel like I'm addicted to bread. I can't stop eating it. What are some tips to help me stop overeating? Great. Hi, Emma. Well, you can stop eating it. And so I'd suggest even maybe just changing what you're telling yourself. So um, you absolutely can if that's something that you want to do. Um, And thinking about, you know, what you would feel good about in terms of your bread consumption. Is it having less of it um, or is it setting it aside entirely for a certain amount of time? but for many people, it might be doing just that, um, taking a break from it for a little while. And um, I guess I'm curious to know um, more about, you know, what you're looking to achieve and and the bread consumption and um, how you feel like not having it might benefit you. So 
Um, you can do it if that's what you want to do. And so maybe having that mindset of knowing that it is something you can achieve, um, it might be helpful. Dr. Barnard, we've spoken at length about food addiction, primarily about cheese addiction. And, and perhaps food addiction is is kind of a similar thing, no matter what food it is that we're talking about. What advice do you have for somebody who's struggling with food addiction? Uh, yeah, I, I guess a couple of things. Um, first of all, it's not you. It's the food. Um, the reason I say that is so many people will say, there's something wrong with me. I had a bad childhood. Well, yeah, we, we may have had, we've all had childhood trauma and so forth. But but in, in most cases, the reason that people get addicted to food is that there are laboratories uh, run by the Chocolate Manufacturers Association and everybody else trying to figure out how to get you hooked on food. Um, the dairy industry itself, actually, it's an amazing thing. 20 years ago, the dairy industry worked with the U.S. government to pull together what they call the Cheese Forum, specifically to try to figure out how to get more Americans hooked on cheese. And they were wildly successful. And the trick was just to make sure that the cheese is high salt, high fat, of course, which they did already, but um, to make sure it was always there uh, on every menu, uh, very prominently displayed so that it would trigger addictive behavior. And that can happen no matter who you are. Um, so in other words, it's not you. It's the food and it's the marketing. Anybody can get food addicted. But let me come back to the, to the bread issue uh, that was just raised. Um, two quick points. Uh, typical breads are wheat breads. Wheat is a high glycemic grain, meaning it releases sugar fairly rapidly. Rye and barley are... Um, uh, are, are lower glycemic index foods. So let's say you go to the store and you get a rye bread. You'll notice that often there are blends of wheat and rye and it will affect your blood sugar more gradually and make you feel satisfied longer. So you discover you're not dig digging into breads quite so much. But the, the, the perhaps the most important thing is bread itself isn't, isn't a devil. I think Karen hinted at this earlier. Um, why do you want to stop eating it? I think the real issue is what's on your bread? If what's on your bread is salami um, and bologna and cheese, then that's really the bigger issue. If what's on your, your bread is low-fat hummus or some veggie slices or make a CLT, that's a cucumber lettuce and tomato sandwich, with a little uh, mustard or something like that, that's an okay sandwich. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't beat yourself up about having that. I would love to talk more about food addiction on another show because just thinking back, I, I just remember when I was still addicted to fast food, it was like a switch would get flipped if I didn't get it, even for one single day. And I just, I just became this jerk. It was a total Jekyll and Hyde situation. So I empathize so much with what Emma was saying. So let's, uh, let's come back to that on a future show. If we didn't get to your question today, have no fear. Plenty more opportunities are available. Each day on The Exam Room Live, we will be answering at least one question. And then once a week, we do these extended Q&As where we take the questions from Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and we put them all together and then we have Dr. Barnard and other experts go ahead and get you as many answers as possible. So go ahead and keep on sending them in. You can find us on Twitter at Chuck Carroll WLC or at PCRM. Send us your questions using the hashtag exam room podcast. You can also find us on Instagram again at Chuck Carroll WLC, but the physicians committee is at physicians committee on the gram. Again, just be sure to use the hashtag exam room podcast. 
And please also head over to Apple Podcast or Spotify, really wherever shows are available, and hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star review. Because when you do that for the Exam Room Podcast, not only will you begin to receive new episodes automatically each week, but you'll also be helping to get this information into the hands of someone who needs it the most. Because the more subscriptions and the more five-star ratings we receive, the higher we climb in podcast rankings. And the higher we climb in the rankings, the easier it becomes for people to find us. And in turn, the easier it is for them to learn all of this potentially life-saving information. And you've heard me reference the exam room live. Well, you can catch that show every weekday, Monday through Friday at noon Eastern on the Physicians Committee's Facebook and YouTube pages. Always a good time. Dr. Barnard and I are always there for you. As a matter of fact, coming up on the Thursday edition, that would be today's if you're getting this on day one, Lee Crosby will be sharing some super easy ways to eat plant-based without breaking the bank. She's going to give us her top eight cheap eats. So that is going to be a lot of fun and super informative and help keep a little extra change in your pocket. But for right now, that's going to wrap things up for us. My thanks again to two of the best, Drs. Michael Greger and Neil Barnard for taking the time to join us today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe and keep it plant-based. <laughs>